Well, go ahead and grab a seat wherever you are at. Welcome to another virtual Sunday here at Sedaris. My name's Dave, one of the pastors here. If you've got your Bible, would you grab it and open up to 2 Peter chapter 2? We are getting near the end of our teaching series in 2 Peter. Actually, we're teaching all of Peter, First and 2 Peter, so we're coming to the end of his second letter, a letter that he wrote to a group of churches. And um, uh, this week, like last week, is not the most uplifting of messages, but important nonetheless. All of God's Word is good for us and nourishes our soul. Some of it tastes better than others. So because this is another challenging week, let me just start off with just an encouraging analogy. You may or may not have noticed I got a haircut. Thanks for noticing. My, <laughs> I just got to call out my wife here. She didn't notice for the first 24 hours, but after a few hints, she did notice and said some nice things. Um, but, you know, to be honest, I'm not in love with my haircut. But here's the thing. My hair will grow out. There shall be, as Jeff said, new beginnings. <laughs> and um, I don't know what your life's like right now. I don't know... Uh, where this service finds you, maybe you're like my hair and you feel like you've been cut a little short and uh, you don't have much room to work and and you feel compressed and you feel uh, this isn't your best. Guess what? You'll grow out of this. (laughs) We'll all grow out of this. This is the promise of Scripture that it won't always be such. We will uh, come into the kingdom of Jesus eventually though there might be bad haircuts along the way. So there's my uplifting uh, moment. And now let's get into 2 Peter chapter 2. And let me just remind you where we're coming from. So let's read chapter 2, verse 1, to set the stage. We're not going to look at the whole chapter again. We looked at a big sloth of the chapter last week. We're going to look at another section this week. But let's just see how this chapter begins. He says this in verse 1. I think we're going to have this on the screen here. Um, but false prophets also arose among the people. And he's talking about in the Old Testament, the people of Israel, Israel, just as there will be false teachers. Now he's talking about the New Testament church. This is the time after Jesus, the people of God after Jesus came and established his church. False teachers will come among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, that's false teachings, even denying the master who brought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Now, we talked a bit last week, you go back and watch this online, how to identify false teaching or false teachers, some of the common things that you'll see from them and in their teaching. Um, One of the things you see it here is denying the master. These teachers were actually denying that Jesus would be coming back, that he would come back to bring justice in full, that he'd come back to judge the living and the dead. They denied that, and so it led them to a type of lifestyle of sensuality, licentiousness, living for themselves, being greedy, and, and, and coming still, though, underneath the grace of God, saying, we don't need, we won't give an account for our actions. Jesus isn't coming again. So that's sort of the context in which we find um, ourselves here in 2 Peter. So now let me read you the text that we'll be looking at today. So jump ahead in chapter 2 to verse 17. It says this, These, false teachers, 
are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. They've got, a, they've got reserved seating, Peter's saying. For, speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. Talking about new converts to Christianity. They promise freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of, of, the Lord, of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says, and now he's quoting the Old Testament proverbs, has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit. And the sow, that's a baby pig, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. The mud. Told you, not the most uplifting of texts, but it is important to understand why Peter brings this up. So we're going to look at that today. And as I studied this passage and thought about this passage, it brought my mind to a phenomenon that I've noticed in our Christian culture. Now, if you're not yet a Christian, we're so glad that you're here um, pressing into the realities of Scripture with us. And, and, and it's good for you to kind of listen into a what, what I would call an interfamily discussion, Okay. But listen in and hear how serious we take these things. See how seriously we take living up to God's moral standards. See how seriously we take identifying who speaks for God and who doesn't. Because Christianity is not out for power, they're out for God's glory. And so that's why we take these things serious. God's glory is at stake. Jesus' name and reputation is at stake. That's how serious we take it. And so within this interfamily um, world of Christianity, particularly in America, what, what, what I've seen an uptick in, in in the last decade or so is, so, is what um, people call these so-called deconversion testimonies. Maybe, maybe you've heard of these. But it's basically, it's usually some high-profile Christian celebrity, which is a contradiction in terms, <laughs> anyhow, by the way, uh, Jesus is the only Christian celebrity. Um, but these so-called celebrities who for many years have been leading people in the faith and then, and then they come out publicly and they talk about their deconversion from Christianity. That they no longer believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and God. And, and they get much popularity. They get way more clicks than somebody proclaiming their faith in Jesus, teaching the word of God. People love to hear deconversion stories. Now, Part of that's probably just the proliferation of social media and the access we have. Uh, part of that is we love seeing train wrecks as a society. But is this phenomenon of deconversion testimonies, a couple weeks ago we heard a few 
conversion testimonies. In fact, we're about to, to send out the highlight videos from the baptisms as Kamran and Jonathan proclaimed their faith in Jesus, told us about their conversion to a life with Christ. But are these deconversion stories, are, should they be troubling to us? Are, are, are these people, do they, um, do they speak for the masses? Or is there another way to explain them? And so this brought me then, as I thought about this, to an even broader question. And this is the question for me. Can you actually fall out of love? Or can you only fall out of like? So, so can we actually fall out of love or... Are we actually just falling out of like? Now, obviously, there's so much wrapped up in there. Um, What is love? We only have one English word. In in the Bible, there's four words for love. That's part of the issue. But can you actually fall out of love or only out of like? So in the context of this passage, um, what we see, we have these false teachers who, who it appears have truly Um, come into the community. These aren't teachers outside of the Christian community trying to draw people away from Christianity. They're claiming Christ. They're saying, I love Jesus. And they're just teaching something that's clearly different than what Jesus taught and what the apostles taught. The apostles being the disciples of Jesus who Jesus sent out to start the church. But they're clearly claiming Christ. Now here's the question. Do they truly love Jesus or do they just like Jesus? Jesus, or maybe they just like his church, or they they like the community that it creates, the the sense of family that it creates. Maybe they just like things, but do they love Jesus? Can we fall out of love with Jesus or just fall out of like? It's clear um, if if you just have been tracking with us through 2 Peter that there seems to be Something real about what they've experienced, because even look at this in verse 20. It says, For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world, through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, okay, so this has happened to them. They've escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge. Now turn back to what Peter says positively in chapter 1, verse 3. He says, uses the exact same words. He says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through, same words, through the knowledge of him, that's Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, who called us to his own glory and excellence. So Peter's using the same word. These teachers have knowledge, and knowledge is what gives you everything in Christ. So what's going on? Have they lost this knowledge? Or is Peter saying, perhaps, that all knowledge is not identical. Maybe there's more than one kind of knowledge. Looks the same, but maybe it's not actually the same. So this is where we're going to go. So we need to dig deeper into this text. Let's see if we can just pull out some truth here that can help us in our life, okay? So look with me at verse 17. First verse of our section this week. It says, These, false teachers, are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. What does it mean here, waterless springs? We talked about this last week a bit. Here's the idea. Um, these teachers were teaching Christ. They were teaching about him, teaching about the cross. 
teaching about the Jesus way, but the way they lived, their moral living, did not lead to life. If you followed their model of living, it would lead to destruction, Peter says. And that's also tied, as I said, to their doctrinal teaching about Jesus isn't coming again. Things will just go on as they always have. And so we sort of create our own future. There's not coming a judgment day or a moment, which we'll talk about next week. We'll talk about the day of the Lord. Um, So their moral living and their doctrine are tied. And usually, I mean, not usually, it's always how it works. Your doctrine will lead to your way of living. And your way of living reflects your doctrine. And so you have to look at what you believe about Jesus because it affects the way you live. Now, these false teachers seem to have a lot of good things to say. We talked about that last week. In fact, in fact, you don't become known in the community and people don't listen to your teaching if you don't have something good to say. But they were a bit of a mirage, Peter says. It was, it was like the, the more you chased after them, you saw water in the distance, but the more you chased after them, the more energy you gave. When you got there, you realized it's even further out. I'm not actually getting to the living water. I'm not actually getting to the nourishment. It's a mirage. It's enticing this path, but the closer you get to it, the closer to ruin you come as well. That's what Peter's saying. It's a bit like salt water. The more you drink of it, actually the thirstier you get. We talked about all this last week. It's like good tasting food, but, but actually in the long run, the more you eat of it, Actually, the hungrier you get, because we talked about last week, there's some poison in there. So if you're throwing up all night, you're not actually growing healthier. So these false teachers, Peter says, they're waterless springs. They're like dried up wells. There's no life-giving water to be found in them. And, and, you know, one of the ways I talk about church planting in a city like Seattle or church planting anywhere is we're building a well and if we find water and we dig and we find water, then, then the job is to build up with solid, permanent stone around that dugout well so that that well can be there for generation after generation. That's what church planting is. If you find true living water, then you fortify it so that many can come over the years and find Christ. That's why we planted a church in Seattle. We didn't think there was a lot of wells. There was a lot of dried up wells. So how can Peter then be so sure that there's no water in these wells what gives him the confidence that's what we'll be talking about this week why is he so confident to call out these brothers air quotes brothers what makes him so sure to do this or is he just a hater well peter turns to answer that question of why he's so sure by using animal metaphors. (laughs) He uses several of them. And Peter's basically saying, listen, it's clear to me that there's no water in these wells because when I look at the lives of these teachers, they act a lot less like Jesus and much more like animals. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Look at verse 18. He says this, For speaking loud boasts of folly... They entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. Now, you wouldn't know this 
unless you uh, read it in the Greek, but this word for speaking in verse 18, it's actually a bit of a play on words. It's a word, there's many words for speaking. It can mean just speaking generally, but he could have chosen other words. He chose a word specifically relating or that can be used for animal utterances. So he's chosen a word that in the Greek speaking world, you would hear that and you'd be like, why did he choose that word for speaking? That's the same word he used for animals. And if you were with us last week, he references a donkey who speaks. So he's saying they, they speak like animals. And then he'll go on to say they live like animals. So jump down to verse 22. What does he say there? He quotes this proverb. What, it is, what, it, what the proverb says is true. It's happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mud. Two more animal references. Now, you don't think he's using animal references? Now turn back to verse 12. He said this. This is from last week. He says this in verse 12. But these teachers, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed. Clearly, he is equating the way these false teachers live. They're living like animals. They're living like animals. Now, if you've ever, never seen a dog return to its vomit to eat, uh, it's a quite disturbing <laughs> experience. Uh, I've seen this happen many a time. Um, now, here's the deal. The dog is not sort of consciously understanding what he or she is doing. They're clearly just being drawn by their instinct, which which. In that vomit is some of the food that they smelled earlier in the day and ate, and that food was good, and so their instinct draws them to the vomit. They're not making a conscious decision of like, that sounds good. They're just literally driven by their desire for more food, and the smell is good enough that they're drawn and they eat their vomit. Sounds like irrational creatures to me, verse 12. And so here's Peter's point. These teachers, if you just watch their way of life, it's clear to me that they are enslaved to their desire, they're enslaved to their instinct, their animalistic instincts. They can't even do um, life contrary to those desires and instincts. They have no power over them. They literally just run their life. That's what Peter's saying. Now let me pause here for a second, because I think probably in all of our heads... Because in my head, this is going, you're thinking to yourself, you're like, ah, I've eaten the vomit. I've gone back to the vomit. I've gone back to the mud that, that God saved me from. I've gone back to that. Am I, am I like these false teachers? Um, I was talking to a counseling student friend of mine, and she was telling me that, that actually in the Uh, clinical psychology world, they've stopped with addiction uh, patients talking about every return to a drug or a behavior um, as a relapse, and they've added a a phrase to call it a slip. Now, obviously, you can relapse where you become, again, enslaved, but many addicts will slip. And so they said, we need need another word so that everything's not a relapse. I, I would use the same principle here. Peter is not talking about just um, Christians who slip, because we all slip back into old habits, bad habits, bad ways of thinking, bad behavior. We all slip, and we slip many times in our life. Peter's talking about people 
who willingly give themselves back over and relapse into the life that they once lived. And they, and they stop calling it vomit. You see, the dog doesn't call it vomit. He calls it dinner. Had it for lunch, and I'm having it for dinner. That's what he's talking about. So if you hear that and all you feel is intense shame and guilt, uh, perhaps there's something here you need to take to the Lord and ask for forgiveness. Then you're like the dog that returns to vomit. Peter is not teaching here Christian perfectionism because we are not perfect before we meet Christ. We're not perfect after we meet Christ. Only Christ is perfect, and his sacrifice for us covers past, present, and future sin. He is our only hope, not our own ability to control ourselves. So, so we're talking about, you know, there's two things. I just want to make, I wanted to pause and say that because I'm sure um, if you're like me, you're feeling, man, am I just like a, a dog returning to the vomit. I mean, who thought I would say vomit so many times <laughs> in a sermon? Okay, let's be honest. Okay. Here's his point, though. If your nature has not truly been changed from that animalistic nature that just gives in to your desire and instinct to a new nature that, that is rooted in Christ and desires Christ's glory and Christ's mission and Christ's power in your life, if your desire hasn't changed, even, again, even for those who slip, their desire has changed, um, they, they hate the fact that they keep slipping, they don't love running to the old thing, but if you haven't been given a new desire, then it probably means you haven't been born again. Because what the Bible teaches is that when we trust and have true knowledge of Christ, the Spirit um, descends upon us and changes our heart and gives us a new heart. And, the, and Jesus said, you're, you need to be born again. And when you're born again, you're not, um, you're not born to animalistic instinct. You're born now to the instinct of Christ. Christ now dwells within you. You're being made new. That's Peter's big idea. When saving faith or saving knowledge overtakes you for Christ, you will be born again to a new way of life, free from those animalistic, controlling desires, and you are given new, transcendent, overpowering desires that lead to new ways of living. You should be able to see that in your life. And Peter's saying, I don't see that at all. And the false teachers, in, in fact, I see them totally relapse to the way they lived before. And now they're just simply calling it Christian freedom. L let me just read you, one commentary puts it so well. So I'm just going to read you an extended excerpt from this commentary. So listen closely, because it's so important that you understand what I'm saying here. Um, this is Peter Davids from the Pillar New, Ten uh, New Testament commentary. He says this, even though... These false teachers pour out hot air, meaning like what they're saying actually is of no value. It, they are not harmless. Indeed, if they were harmless, our author would surely have not bothered with them. What disturbs Peter is that they seduce and entice others to licentiousness, that's free living, loose living, based on the desires of the flesh, that is, the physical drives. Anyone coming from a Jewish background recognized 
the various physical drives, and especially the sexual drive, as neutral and necessary. But such a person would also recognize that when these drives become the motivating force in a person's life, they are destructive. Thus, we saw in them... uh, uh, thus, we saw in 2 Peter 1.4 that corruption has come into the world through desire, or you could say through our drives, in that proper boundaries were not put on them. These teachers entice people because they do not put boundaries on physical, on physical drives and thus encourage others to do whatever feels good. Uh, Peter David continues, he says, This enticement is particularly effective on newer believers. They have just learned that what, is, that what is normal in the world, in our age, this would include the normal patterns of consumption in the world as well as sexual uh, norms. They've just come to see that what's normal in the world is an error and wandering from God's way. Through God's grace, they are newly escaped, but they are not yet stable, 2 Peter 1.12. Now, these teachers come along with their inflated promises that their old way of life was not really wrong in God's eyes, that there will be no final judgment for them, and by these means, they entice these less stable believers back into the lifestyle in which they were once entrapped. This description shows the pastoral heart of 2 Peter. Peter's concern with the teachers is not that he's angry at their behavior per se, because he knows that they will suffer should they not turn from it. So it's more of a sadness than an anger. But, he says, that Peter is upset at the damage they do to others. Naturally, this is not unknown in the church today. I thought that was a really good definition of what's going on here. This is Peter's big idea. We can't live as we once did because we've been made new. We have new power, new instinct, new desires. And so anybody that's telling you just live how you once did is teaching to you a false grace. Okay, so this begs the question, what is Christian freedom then? What is it? What is it? Because look at verse 19. It's clear that these teachers are teaching freedom. Verse 19, they promise them freedom, but they themselves aren't free. They're actually slaves of corruption. For whoever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. Okay? So they're teaching freedom. Peter's teaching freedom. Everybody's teaching freedom. What is Christian freedom? It's a great question if you're asking that in your head. Well, then what is the freedom? that we are promised in Christ. Well, the false teacher's freedom goes like this. It's the freedom to do whatever you want to do because of God's grace in Christ. This is what Bonhoeffer, the great German theologian who was living and died in World War II, he calls this cheap grace. They were teaching cheap grace. They were saying, listen, it doesn't actually matter how you live because God's grace, his, his sacrifice, it covers you. So eat, drink, and be merry, and enjoy Christ forever. So they're still teaching Christ, but they were teaching cheap grace. Now here's the deal. Why is that so wrong? Why should should we taste that poison and realize how bad it is? Because God's grace in Christ is not cheap. 
It is so expensive. Do you know how expensive the gift that was bought for you on Calvary's cross is? That God in the flesh shed his blood, that he chose to sever for a time his relationship with the Father and the Spirit, that he took upon the wrath of God for you. That's expensive. And though sin will come, though we will fall short, when we do, it should break our heart anew because we know how much it cost our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We just sang, he paid it all. And that price was like nothing else we could even imagine. So here's what the apostles teach Christian freedom is. Christ bought you freedom from your instinct to sin against God. Let me say it again. Christ bought you freedom from your instinct to sin against God. You are born again so that you have access to power to live contrary to your old sin nature. It doesn't mean that your old sin nature goes away. It means that you have freedom and you are no longer a slave to it. But it's even more profound than that. Think of the dog again. Think of the dog. It's not just freedom to restrain yourself from the vomit that you now clearly see, okay, that's, that was lunch, <laughs> and it came out looking. Like that's, it's not just freedom to not go back to it. It's free, this is the more profound part. This is the exciting part. It's the freedom to be untethered from it so that now you can go run after, chase after your new master, Jesus Christ. That's the exciting part of Christian freedom. That, see, before you were chained, and maybe you were eating the vomit, maybe you weren't, but it was just sitting in there, and you could not chase. When Christ said, come, follow me, you couldn't because you were chained. He bought you a breaking of the chain. Now you are free to run after him, your new master. That's Christian freedom. And we get that so backwards. I mean, I've just been thinking about this a lot lately. Like the Christian life is not minimizing your sin. The Christian life is maximizing your relationship and joy in Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior. Now, It is about minimizing sin because if you're going back to the vomit, you won't get far in following your new master if you're always one step in both camps, okay? So you do want to minimize your sin, but only so that it serves your new purpose, which is to follow your new master. You you see that? Maximizing God's glory in Christ through relationship with him is the point of the Christian life. Maybe you've never heard that. Maybe you've been in the church your whole life and you thought it was to minimize your sin and you keep failing and you think, man, maybe I'm not even a Christian. Somebody didn't tell you freedom in Christ is freedom to follow Christ, to go to something new and better, something you were created for. That's Christian freedom. We get that so backwards. We have freedom now to move forward because we are no longer enslaved to the vomit. So we don't necessarily cease to have old desires. Sometimes they will completely go away. Most of the time they, they, they linger. They still draw us in. But as we grow, 
what grows in us is this overpowering, overshadowing new desire to worship and love and be on mission with Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. That's what keeps us from the vomit. We've run so far from it because we're chasing Jesus and he's way down the road. So the best way to slay your sin is to run after Jesus. You're struggling with your sin right now because this, this pandemic's got you cooped up. Run to Jesus. Figure out what running to Jesus looks like in the confines of your room. Run to him. Flee from the vomit. Run to him. You just can't run aimlessly, as Cameron said in his testimony. you got to run towards Jesus. Um, let, me, let me give you uh, an illustration that might help you see this. Uh, people come to me all the time. I'm an old man now. Used to be in the dating game. Found my wife, Allie. Fell in love with her. Never looked back. But they ask me now, Dave, they're still in the dating game. They say, Dave, how... Maybe they've had a great experience uh, with a, a partner in the past and they still feel connected to them. They say, Dave, how do I get over an ex? An ex-girlfriend, an ex-boyfriend. Listen, this is what I learned. You don't ever get over the ex until you find something sweeter than the ex, better than the ex, more life-giving than the ex. You can't stop loving the old. You must love something else more. That's what happened when I met Allie. I found someone else that I loved even more, and it helped me get over the past loves. This is why Peter says what he says. If, 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 you, if, you, if you keep running back to the old thing, chances are maybe you haven't actually known the new thing. Maybe you don't actually know Christ <laughs> Because he's so much sweeter. Paul says something similar in Hebrews chapter 6. He talks about those who taste of the kingdom of heaven and then turn away. Peter's talking about those who seem to have knowledge but then turn away. So what's going on here? I think this is what's happening. I think there's two kinds of knowledge, as I said. There's the taste knowledge. And then there's the whole meal knowledge. And if you've just tasted life with Jesus, you're at grave risk of choosing that you don't like it anymore. And that breaks Peter's heart. That breaks my heart. It means that you have not tapped into the full divine power granted to you by the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And Peter brings this up to us to try to help us understand what's happening with these false teachers. Because it seems like, I mean, they're pretty serious Christians. They're teaching in the church. They're coming to all the meetings. Uh, they've got great gifts. So what's going on? Is, is Peter saying here that they've lost their salvation? Have they lost the true knowledge that they once have? Have, have, have they lost their faith? That is definitely one interpretation of this. The other interpretation is that something else is happening. That they had just the one kind of knowledge, but not the saving kind of knowledge. The uh, Apostle James says in his letter that there is a kind of faith that does not save, and a kind of faith that does save. And the kind of faith that does save 
has works attached to it. The kind of faith that saves compels you to kindness and compassion and using your hands to serve and bless the marginalized and the hurting and the poor. That's saving faith. But if there's saving faith, that means that there's non-saving faith. And I think Peter's saying the same thing. There's saving knowledge and there's non-saving knowledge. And, and, and I equate this to dating a girl versus marrying a girl. Or dating a boy versus marrying a boy. And when you're dating, whatever that thing is, and we usually call it love, I think is a lot more like like. And when you marry, it's a lot more like love. Although the like is there too. Peter is saying that when you have saving knowledge in Christ, it will inevitably lead you to perseverance because I don't think you can ever fall out of love. I do think you can fall out of like. Now go back to chapter 1 and let me show you how I came to this conclusion. Look at verse 10, chapter 1. It says this. And I think this is sort of a thesis for the whole letter. Therefore, brothers... Be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Now, Peter's saying, I think the false teachers are confirming the fact that they have not been called to life eternal in Christ. They're proving the fact that they never were converted to Christ they never actually were fully into the kingdom. They maybe tasted it, participated, they liked it, they dated it. But as soon as things got hard, as soon as things got rough, you know what? They stopped liking it. They fell out of like with certain parts of the Jesus way, with certain parts of Jesus. They fell out of like. And it just confirms that they are not yet called to the kingdom. So don't listen to them. Don't follow their teaching. They're not yet a part of the family of God. Hard teachings. Now let me return back then real quick to these deconversion stories that we hear so much about now. I, I don't think they're all that different than what Peter was addressing. Again, there's not that much new under the sun. This kind of thing has been happening since the beginning of time, since the beginning of God's people, since the beginning of the church 2,000 years ago. So how do we understand these deconversion stories? Two, two options, I think. The first is that the deconversion testimonies aren't truly authentic, meaning they're not actually truly leaving the faith. They're just going through such a dry spell that it seems to them that they no longer believe. And my hope and my prayer, this is what I hope most people fall into this first category, that once they sort of test the waters of unbelief, that they'll come back and realize, you know what, I always believed. I just really was wrestling with my doubt, and I didn't know, and I, I couldn't quite fit it together, and I, I knew some people that were living this way, and I, I just, I, but I always believed. That's the first kind. So the deconversion testimony is a false testimony. The other option is that the conversion testimony, whenever they first believed, was a false testimony. And they never actually truly believed and had this saving knowledge that Peter talks about. Again, my hope with all of these stories, these high-profile stories, is that the first is true. But it is possible that the second is true. 
And I hear the same thing over and over again in these deconversion testimonies. Things like this. Well, I'd had these doubts the whole time I was a Christian. And I suppressed them, but now I'm finally being true to myself. They were always there. I just covered them up. Or I hear this. Well, I'd always wanted to live this particular way. Believe these particular things. But because I was a pastor or a Christian musician, I had to walk the party line. Now I'm finally free to live and to think how I've always desired. Or they'd say something like this. Well, I was never really convinced of the resurrection or fill in the blank. But thought maybe over time I would be. Now, finally I'm being honest with myself and saying I never actually believed. Now, either these statements are true or maybe... In the past season of their life, those things were always there. Because to be honest, we all have these lingering doubts, these lingering questions. That we're still more convincing to be done. We, we still struggle with how to live in God's holy way. And maybe in the past, when they were, when they were living for Jesus, preaching for Jesus, singing for Jesus, uh, writing books for Jesus, their greater faith overshadowed their doubt. You see, remember I talked about a new desire. It's not the old goes away. It's that the new overshadows it. Or, or maybe it's that the better way of Jesus actually overshadowed the confusion about the old ways of living. Or, or maybe it's, it's the solution and the evidence of Christ and the, the personal experience of Christ overshadowed the questions about the resurrection or, or you name which difficult to believe supernatural act of God. Maybe it was just in that, that's my hope, in that old, and they don't know how to understand that. So if you're watching it and you maybe are on the edge of deconversion, don't think that your doubt uh, is a sign that you don't believe. Ask God to give you an overshadowing faith. And I've seen that happen time and time and time again. Because when we're made new, the new overshadows the old. But if these statements are true, on the part of those deconverted, I think it's fair to say that they never actually married Christ, that they were always just dating. And when it was nice to date, when it worked out well for them, when they liked dating Christ, they dated Christ. And as soon as they stopped liking Christ and dating him and it became too hard and unpopular and too much work, they dumped him. That's also definitely true. And if that's the case, what's really happening is not that they fell out of love with Christ, it's that they fell out of like with Christ. And this is so easy to do, particularly in times of trial like we're in right now. When we look around and we don't like the fact that God's allowing a pandemic, that we don't like the fact that God has allowed injustice to rule in our land for so long. We don't like that about Jesus. We don't like that about God's plan, and so you are susceptible in this moment to walk away from your Savior. Don't do it. Choose to marry Christ, meaning that you'll persevere with him through the ups and downs, and your perseverance will be a sign that you are called and elected by Christ for his eternal kingdom. So, so let me just say this again to be crystal clear. Your freedom, because pe people will preach to you freedom. Your freedom 
in Christ is not freedom from temptation, but freedom from enslavement to temptation. Your freedom is not freedom from doubt. Your freedom is freedom from the enslavement of doubt. Your temptation, your desire, your instinct, your sin, the devil himself, they are no longer your master. Christ Jesus is your master. You need to hear that. You are free from those entanglements, but it's a freedom to come underneath the lordship and mastery of Christ Jesus. So three takeaways. Don't be overly concerned about this uptick in deconversion testimonies. I think they've always been there. Now it's just a lot easier and you can make a lot more money by writing a book about it or starting a podcast about it or you know, starting a deconversion tour or something. There's money to be made. <laughs> and so people will always... Make it a lot more public if there's money to be made. So don't get overly concerned. This has been happening from Peter's day onward. This is not new. God is not losing his people. Second, be careful how to understand when Christian freedom is preached. Listen very closely to how people teach Christian freedom because it can mess you up in so many ways. It can mess you up in so many ways. So listen closely. Listen back to this sermon to get a clear picture of what Christian freedom actually means. And then third, just don't return to the mud. Try as hard as you can not to return to the mud. But if you have, turn and read Jesus' parable about the prodigal son who literally sat in the pigsty, in the mud, eating the slop with the pigs. And then he remembered what life with his father was actually like. He'd forgotten. And he turned and he repented and he walked back to his father and he says, I was wrong, take me back. And the father runs to him and embraces him and makes him a new meal and says, welcome home, son. You are not too far gone. You are not lost God is waiting for you. Turn to him and have life and life anew. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you never give up, that you're always waiting, that even when it seems like we've turned back to the vomit, turned back to the mud, that Christ is still waiting for us to turn back to him. God, I pray that we understand this freedom we now have from that sin, from the devil, from those bad habits, from our, from our nature given to us at birth, whatever it is, that we have real freedom from it, and that that freedom is to turn and follow you with our lives, and that that power that those things have in us starts to dwindle as we turn more fully to our master Jesus. God, I pray for my friends. I pray for myself that I would grow into this freedom more fully, that I would accept the gift and that I would walk and live my life most fully for Jesus. He is my rock. He is my savior. He is my joy. He is my forgiveness. He is my hope. He is my eternal life. I embrace that now. I build my life on that now. I pray that my friends will do the same.
It's in Jesus' name that we pray all of this and a million other things. God, hear our prayers. Amen.